prepares us for the Lenten season. The time that we focus upon, am I on? I can't tell, it's kind of, okay. That focuses upon the time before the crucifixion and focuses our attention upon Easter, upon Jesus' death, his resurrection, and even in some ways the ascension that follows. As I was thinking about this week and getting ready for this message, I was thinking about an event that happened about a month ago. Those of you who follow sports know that there was a good possibility that I was going to have to deal with a major dilemma. In the playoffs, there was a moment when the Saints were playing the Vikings. Now, if you if you're, don't know me, I spent 25 years in New Orleans and was a pretty avid Saints fan at that time. If the Saints defeated the Vikings, the next week I was going to be in that dilemma. What should I do? Should I support the saints? Sounds biblical, doesn't it? Or should I support the eagles? I actually thought, I I have some saints paraphernalia. I I actually thought about buying an eagle shirt and, and having Cindy kind of rip it down the middle and be half and half. Not, not quite be committed. Or I thought maybe if they were going to win that, that I would do the big reveal and wear a sweater one morning and then, you know, take off the sweater and let everyone know. And one of the cool things was if the Saints had won, no matter who was in the Super Bowl, I'd have somebody to cheer for. And then, in a moment of unbelievable sadness and relief, this happened. I wept bitterly. (laughs) It was the worst dig of my life. Those of you who follow football will get that. When Case Keenum threw that touchdown pass to Stefan Diggs. They had him. But yet he was able to break the tackle and to to run for a touchdown. And what was 24-23 became 24-29. But you know what? It saved me a dilemma. Because suddenly I knew the next week who I was going to root for. But in doing that, it reminded me of several years ago, back in 2013, when again the Eagles were playing, but this time they were actually playing the Saints. And we were new up here. We'd only been up here a few years, so I was still pretty strongly you know, able to follow the saints. And I had my saints paraphernalia. And the day of the game, I made an incredible mistake. I wore my Drew Brees jersey to Walmart. 
I was afraid. I was very afraid. I mean, there would be people walking by that would make comments. There was growling. There was, I, it was, I thought, I'm getting out of here. But the question became, was I committed enough to my team to demonstrate my support in enemy territory. Now, hold on to that thought. Because the parable that we read this morning, that John read to us, is asking that very question. Are you committed enough to your team to demonstrate support even in enemy territory. Now, as we wake our way through this series, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. And as we look at it, we are to faithfully serve that king. And that's the kind of the theme as you come to the begin, the end of what was known as the Jerusalem journey as Jesus made his way in the book of Luke from Galilee down to Jerusalem in sort of this Syracusian route. And then you begin the proclamations in Jerusalem. And between those, Luke writes a parable and he writes a narrative, a story. True story, history, that presents to us a question. How are you going to handle this king? What are you going to do about this king? Are you going to be like those that were baptized this morning and declare yourself to be a follower of him, awaiting his return? Or are you going to be like others who spurn him and reject him? and seek to destroy him and his kingdom. Now, in order to get there, we need to understand a little bit about how Luke presents the identity of this now and later king. And one of the things you find in the Gospel of Luke is there's this tension. It's often mentioned in discovery class, on the one hand, on the other. On the one hand, Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is king. Jesus is God. And and that's very clear in the book of Luke. But also, at the same time, Jesus is coming and presenting himself as king. He's presenting himself as Messiah. He's presenting himself as the one who comes to establish his kingdom. And I believe earthly kingdom. So that he is now king but he will also be later king. And Luke develops that theme all the way through his book. And when you look at the book of Luke, the very first thing you read is Luke in his gospel clearly demonstrates that Jesus is the royal Messiah. And that's the theme in the the four sections that make up the book of Luke. The first thing he shows us in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through Luke chapter 4, verse 13, is that his birth and childhood are that of a royal Messiah. This is the one that was predicted. 
This is the one that Elizabeth sang that incredible song in, in, in Luke as she talked about the coming of the Messiah. This is the one that Mary proclaims the Magnificat, the magnificent declaration of the one that's coming. This is the one that, that was heralded by the angels. This is the one that was presented in the temple according to Jewish purposes. This is the one who was royally born as the Messiah. And then what Luke does is he often does this. He, he ends sort of with the childhood of Jesus, then mentions the genealogy, and then has this transitional point where he speaks about the temptation and the baptism. And that ends that first section. The next three sections are designated through geography. The next thing that Luke does is his, he defi- defines his ministry through Galilee and how that demonstrates that he is the Christ. He is the royal Messiah of God. He is the one that is coming to offer the kingdom to the people. It begins in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and goes through Luke chapter 9, verse 50. And the high point, the, the kind of the capstone, the, the place where all of the focus of that section is found is in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, when he has finished feeding the 5,000 and the group is leaving and the, the many are leaving Jesus and, and he's asking them questions about, well, who do people say that I am? And some say, you're Elijah. And some say, you're John the Baptist. And then he looks straight at his disciples. You, you get that sense in the text. And he says, who do you say I am? Peter answers, you're the Christ of God. All through Galilee, as he's involved in those miracles, and he's involved in raising people and healing people and and, uh, feeding so many, and all that's taking place, the proclamation is, He's the Messiah. The next section is Luke chapter 9, verse 51, through Luke chapter 19, verse 44. And it deals with his journey to Jerusalem. And the focus changes. It's no longer on his identity. Luke has declared that to us. He has said, this is the Christ. Matthew records it as, the son of the living God. Then there's a little bit of a few events that take place after that. And then he begins this journey to Jerusalem. And the focus is not on his miracles. The focus is on his teaching. And the conflict that is taking place between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jesus. And how he is coming to proclaim this king has a new way. Not the way of the Pharisees, not the way of the Sadducees, not the way of the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant. And he focuses on humility. He focuses on caring for the, for the poor, and he focuses on caring for the weak, and he focuses on caring for those that are outside of the, the power and the norms. And three times he proclaims to them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to the cross, and they're going to kill me. And Luke presents to us this new way. It's not the king you expect. 
It's not the military conqueror. It's not what you think you understand about the Messiah. This Messiah will die. Oh, he'll be resurrected. But he will die. The passage we're looking at this morning is at the very end of that. Where the question becomes as we move into the next section. What are you going to do with this Messiah and his new way? How are you going to respond? What are you going to do? On Palm Sunday, we will celebrate what's often called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I think that's a misnomer. It wasn't the triumphant. It was the decisive entrance. How are you going to decide? And then the rest of the book, the rest of the, the book of Luke, as he makes his journey through Jerusalem to Olivet, to the place where the Mount of Olives, where he is ascended to the Father. The question becomes will you accept this one who reveals himself as the suffering yet triumphant Messiah? Lent is not just about Easter. Easter is not just as it's presented in the Gospels, only about Easter. It is. Jesus is resurrected. But the question becomes, what are you going to do with that? What does that mean to you? Do you walk away from that and ignore that reality? Or does it become in some ways central to who you are and what you do? Now, as Luke is finishing that third section and he confronts us with what's going to follow, he's going to ask the question, what are you going to do with this one who is the Messiah and his new way? And he does that through a transitional passage. It begins in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, and goes through Luke chapter 19, verse 44. And then the next verse you read, and he was in the temple. Now he's no longer journeying Jerusalem. Now he's in Jerusalem. But 11 through 44 is a transition, and he does it first through a parable. And he tells us this parable that we're going to look at this morning very quickly. And what you notice in the parable is that the king will journey to be crowned. If you listen to John reading that, you heard about how this nobleman was to be king. And so he makes a long journey. And by the way, on that journey, he's already made king. And then he returns. In that parable, you read that some will oppose the king and be judged. Some will say, we don't want him as king. And they follow him in a sense on that journey and they say, we don't want him, we don't want him. Well, when you had that attitude towards a sovereign in the Middle East, in the first century, you would be judged. Some will accept the king and they will serve him and they will follow him. And as we move into Jerusalem, some are saying, crucify him. Others are saying, as you get to the end of Luke, you're the Christ. 
You're my God. The parable asks the question, which are you? And how does it affect your life? But it also involves a narrative. Uh, uh, it's historical, the events that are taking place in Jerusalem. And you get the same kind of theme. The king is on a journey to crucifixion and to resurrection. He is involved in going to the cross. He will be resurrected. He will be ascended. And by the way, in that journey, he's declared king. Some will oppose the king and face judgment. Some of it will be historical. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD and then again in 132 AD when when Rome comes in and not one stone is left upon another on the Temple Mound. But some will accept the king and will await his return. As we enter into to Lent, the, the question is, as I hear this story, what am I going to do about Jesus? What does it mean in my life? Am I one who rejects him? Or am I one who accepts him? And by the way, if I accept him, am I one that is a faithful servant? Or one that lives as a practical atheist? As though my Lord God really didn't live and didn't really exist. Now as you look at that, what the parable will teach us, and that's what we want to look at this morning, is the parable. Next week we'll look at the narrative. The question becomes this. During the wait for our king's return, like him, the same way that our king faced it, we will face opposition. There will be those that do not like our message. There will be those that do not like our lifestyle. Now, sometimes it's they don't like our self-righteousness, and that's appropriate. But I'm saying when we respond in humility and love and kindness and grace, some will still reject. Are we surprised? In the parable... The parable is actually based on a historical event. Remember Herod the Great was alive when Jesus was born? Heard from three guys that had traveled, or however many guys, you don't really know how many, but a bunch of guys that had traveled from the east and came and said, we seek the one that's born the king of the Jews. And, and Herod went to the wise people in his court and said, well, where's Jesus supposed to be, or where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, Bethlehem, so... The loving King Herod went in and slaughtered every child two years old and under to destroy any opportunity for a new king to rise. He had a couple of sons. And the one that was next to be king of the Jews was a man by the name of Archelaus. 
But because Israel was over Roman control, in order for Archelaus to be crowned king, he had to make his way to Rome and speak to Caesar, and Caesar had to make him king. And so he started making a journey to Rome. But the Jewish people despised Archelaus for good reason. You see, just before he was about to be made king, there was a delegation of Jewish people that had come before him. There were two scholars and a bunch of their followers, and they came before Archelaus, and they had some real concerns, and they were confronting him about the concerns that they had. Part of their struggle is that Archelaus wasn't really even Jewish. He was, he was from um, another country, and most of all, he was a Samaritan, partially. So they were telling Archelaus their concerns, and Archelaus became so angry that he slaughtered the two scholars. He slaughtered all of their followers. And there began to be this rumbling in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover that Archelaus had done that. He had just slaughtered these Jewish leaders, and and there began to be this rumbling and this complaining, and the Jews started gathering together for their Passover, and they started gathering together in the Temple Mound. And Archelaus heard about the grumbling. So he sent in his troops. And he slaughtered 3,000 Jews on the Temple Mount in one evening. And then even worse, he canceled Passover. It will not happen this year. The Jewish leaders despised Archelaus. And as Archelaus was making his way to Rome, the Jewish leaders also sent a delegation to Rome to say to Caesar, please don't make him king. And what's interesting is they were successful. Archelaus became tetrarch, not king. And the kingdom was divided into four because he would not be made king. That's the historical situation behind this parable. Everybody that had gathered knew that story. Everybody understood what Jesus was saying. He was saying that that they were opposing this king, that they despised this king, and they were going to do whatever was necessary to keep him from the throne. And so he went on a journey, and in the midst of the journey, they started saying, we don't want him. We despise him. We don't want his way. We want it our way. And so Jesus went on a journey. The journey isn't just to Jerusalem. Luke is talking about the the wholeness of the journey. He's preparing us for what happens in Luke chapter, the end of Luke chapter 19 through Luke chapter 24. And he's saying this journey that Jesus is on is, yes, making his way into Jerusalem, but it's his death, his resurrection, his ascension, when he is declared king. How do I know that? Well, the passage and its context, but also the other book that Luke wrote declares this. God has raised this Jesus to life. 
And we are all witnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, the place of authority. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, the indication that the kingdom had come, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, but he came back and has now ascended to be the royal Messiah. The resurrection in Jesus and the ascension of Jesus Christ is the journey that Luke is talking about. And beloved, whether you want to admit it or not, Christ Jesus is king. Period. End of sentence. You can't make him Lord of your life. You can't, you can't, you know, he is Lord of your life. The question is only, will you admit to it and surrender to it? What takes place is that when the king returns, there's judgment on those who would thumb their nose. And this is written in a Near Eastern setting. And you better believe when the king returns and you were opposed to him, this is not democracy. If you voted for the other candidate, okay. Here, you vote, you supported the other guy to be king. Things didn't go well for you. Jesus says, if you reject the Lord, know that there's judgment that comes upon your life. Now, in the sense of a life that is lived in in futility, and later in a life that is separated eternally from God. The choice you made. Historically, it's speaking about Jerusalem. In AD 70, when they stood against the, the, the Roman army, and they came in and they destroyed Jerusalem, they took away the treasures of the, of the temple, Jerusalem was destroyed. And then again in A.D. 132, when they utterly destroyed, and we're going to see Jesus' prediction, not one stone will rest upon another. But it's also a future judgment on all who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. They choose to be separated from God. And God simply says, I give you your choice. I will give you what you've asked for. We tend to think that on the decisive entrance of Jesus, the the, the events of Palm Sunday, we tend to think that the whole city was out kind of celebrating. I don't think you need to think of it that way. I think it was his disciples maybe a few others. My guess is if you were in Jerusalem, most people didn't even know what was going on. I think they knew of his crucifixion. And I think they rejected him 
when they mocked him for being called the king of the Jews. There's rejection. I mean, there's judgment for those that reject the Lord. But here's the part that really hits us. Those who oppose the king, they're going to oppose his servants too. They're going to oppose those that stand in his name. You can't have been on Facebook this week or on some form of social media to just hear some of the attacks that took place. Our vice president was attacked because he said he listened to the voice of Jesus in making decisions and he was called insane. Does that shock you? Does it shock you that when we choose to live in a biblical way and that same vice president who said, you know, I don't go one-on-one with a woman for dinner or I always bring someone along, was scorned and mocked well, until about six months ago when all the sexual abuse stuff came out about Hollywood and suddenly the man looked like the epitome of wisdom. Are we surprised? They will oppose us. It's okay. It doesn't mean we surrender. It doesn't mean we give up. It doesn't mean, it means that in righteousness, yes, but in gentleness and in kindness and in love and in understanding, we stand for the one who is our Lord, knowing that there will be others who stand against. Sometimes it gets rough. If you work in business, if you work in the corporate world, taking a stand for Christ, making the choice to not do some of the things that are going on may cause you to be passed over. Not one of the team. Beloved, if you're in school, whether it's junior high or high school or particularly college, you're stupid for holding those views. But will you still stand strong? Don't be surprised. Don't feel like, oh, I must be doing something wrong. Now again, if you're a self-righteous jerk, you're being judged for that, not for the stand you're taking. But they're going to oppose us. Also, we need to understand something. That during the wait, in the midst of enemy territory, we are still tasked with representing his interest. We need to demonstrate that we're on his side. Even as the delegation wanted and said, we don't want him to be king, and we're living in a, in a world that says, we don't want him to be king. The question becomes, will you still stand up for the king? And that's the focus of the parable. It is not a capitalistic parable with an emphasis on profit. That's part of it. It is a first century parable with an emphasis of, will you live out a life of commitment to the king while you're waiting his return? And we don't have time to read through the parable again, but during the time of the king's absence, his subjects, they receive gifts. They receive one minna. There's 10 of them. 
Each one receives one. And they're told to use that minna to go out and to serve the purposes of the king, even while he's absent, even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of a world that says he's not going to be king, but our king said, oh, yes, I am, and I'm returning. It's like wearing a Saints jersey to, to Walmart in the middle of a Saints-Eagles game. Will you take a stand for the team you're on, even in the midst of oppositional territory. And so, Jesus, and so the parable says, you know, he gave one to each of them and some went out and represented the king really well. And they traded in the name of the king and they traded in the purposes of the king. And, and as a result of their faithfulness, they, they received much back and they're honored. Another one went out and for his one, he gained 10. Another one, for his one, gained five. That's a 1,000% increase and a 500% increase. I'll take that on my investments. But then there was the third. You see, there are those that use their gifts to trade as representatives of the king, and they're not afraid to say, I'm doing this in the name of the king. I'm, I'm his representative. I'm doing business for the king. The result is, his faithful servants represent his interests well. But also, there's another servant. Now, we don't catch it with our ears of Westerners. But hear what he does. He wraps up the money in a handkerchief and just kind of stores it away. That was considered absolute irresponsibility. You ever watch the movie The Unsinkable Molly Brown? Her husband has this claim of silver and, and he makes all of this money and he collects his money and he brings it home and, and he's thinking, where can I hide it? And he hides it in the stove. Molly comes home, is cold, and lights a fire. Now you can say, Molly, you shouldn't have done that, but you can also say, hey, bad place to hide it. This is both greed and irresponsibility. You see, he says to the king, I'm not really sure you're going to return in his thinking. So I'll keep the men up because if you return, then I'll just give you back your one. Ah, who's lost? But if you don't return, it's mine. You know what's so interesting? Do you know who kept the 10 they made? They didn't give it back to the king. They got to keep it. The five they got to keep it. The only one that loses is the unfaithful or greedy servant. And, and Luke is simply coming to us and saying, who are you going to be? In the story that follows, some will be those who oppose him. Some will be those who follow him. But those that follow him, some will be faithful. And others will say, get away from me. I never knew you. And what the parable is doing is saying, what are you going to do? What's the truth in your life? How are you living it out?
Are you living it out? So that when the king returns, we'll give an account. How do we use what he gave us? Beloved, I realize that I'm speaking to a room where most of us are believers in Jesus Christ. There may be some, a few that don't know that. That's fine. We understand that. And, and we want to walk with you and tell you how you can know Christ as Savior and be one of those that says, he is Lord of my life. But so many believers... Live as though Jesus is just something I think about on Sunday. At your work this week, when you were thinking through the schedule of your week, did you think in terms of Jesus is my Lord? I wonder how I can reflect that in my schedule. When you chose to be involved in leisure time this week, did we think? I wonder how I can show Jesus in my leisure. Students, as you studied and went to class this week, I wonder how I can show Jesus in the classroom. Parents, as you interact with your children, how can I show Jesus? How can I show his lordship in my life in the way I interact with him? There's an old, old book called Practicing the Presence of Christ. It asks the question, how are you living your life in a way that represents his purposes? How much of that is a part of your thinking and your commitment and your purpose in life? Jesus, he's the Messiah the royal one. He came with a new way to come to God and to please him with my life. And the question is asked, how are you going to respond? Father, thank you for the parable and then for the story that follows. Father, we pray that we would allow your spirit to convict us to show us where we fail to live out in a way that demonstrates our commitment to doing that which is pleasing and well representative of you. Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know your son as their savior, Father, we're glad that they are here and we would invite them to come and speak to somebody about how they might know that. But Father, also, we pray for those of us who have that commitment to you as our savior and Lord. Father, show us the ways that we fail to represent you well, to be that good and faithful servant. For your honor, for your glory, we ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.